reason. Isaiah 43 is where we'll be tonight. That's on page 833 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5. And we'll end in Isaiah 43. So we'll journey from uh, Matthew 5. We'll spend most of our time there. And then we'll pull everything together out of Isaiah 43. Okay? Let's pray. And then we'll look into God's Word. Father, we ask for your help tonight. Lord, we're grateful for this Word that we stand before God, this Bible that we possess in our hands. We recognize that this is your Word breathed from you, intended for us, Lord God. Thank you that it is perfect and without error or blemish in any way. We give you glory and praise for the truly remarkable gift that it is. And God, I pray tonight you'll give us eyes to see you, ears to hear from you. And Lord God, Hearts that are good soil to receive from you tonight. And we'll give you glory for all that you'll do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, one of the things that uh, I love to do when I'm in Brazil is whenever I'm preaching in Brazil, uh, one of the challenges is to constantly, I keep a log of all the things that I've taught on and all the thing, all the illustrations that I've used because Brazilians love personal stories. They love, you know, and, and let's face it. I mean, most of the stories I have are personal except for the ones I get to tell about y'all and then I have to get permission. So that's kind of boring. I'd rather just do it unless you're my kids and I just take the license and roll with it. But, but besides that, I keep, a, I keep a log of the things of, of things that I've shared with them so that I, you know, don't double up on uh, stories or texts or make sure that I'm building up. You know, I mean, they're, they're very infantile in their understanding. And so I'm building their theological grid, so to speak, as God puts all that together. And because I'm only there every so often, I've got to be very strategic about the things that I, that I teach on. So this past time, I uh, shared this story that I'm about to share with you, which led to the uh, the genesis of tonight's message, and that is... Uh, that I've been thinking about this topic and uh, thinking about some of the struggles that I face as a young man and some of the hardships of uh, really when you think I, I don't know exactly uh, what it's like to uh, to be a, a female, although uh, I am married to one and have raised one. And so I think I've learned a little bit along the way. And I know that, you know, girls mature a little bit earlier and uh, tend to, to hit the same battles, but at different times than boys. But let me tell you something. Seventh grade for a boy is a bad, it's a bad year. It's a bad year. Trying to figure out who we are, trying to figure out, uh, you know, where we're going to fit in and uh, just uh, the things that we go through. And, and uh, especially if you're like me, where you just, uh, you know, the term late bloomer, doesn't even do justice to, to me. I won't go into detail, but just suffice it to say that it, that it was a it was a hard road in junior high for Tony. And uh, one of the things was uh, that I made it hard on myself. And so there was a uh, I think I've shared before that in the seventh grade, I mean I failed PE, folks. Let's just get that out on the table. Okay, I just want you to get the whole the full vision of just how pathetic my life was. F in P.E. Uh, I just was, uh, I was a train wreck. I was, uh, I was falling apart at the seams. I was angry at the world. I was disconnected from everything. But in the midst of it, I was a seventh grade boy and I was into seventh grade boy things. And so I had a bike and I loved my bike and I wanted to ride my bike and I was with my friends and we were basically into that. And I liked girls, but girls didn't like me. And so that presented a challenge. And so, um, one day I was just sitting in school and, uh, just basically waiting for the bell to ring so that I could go out and get on my bike and me and my friends could ride our bikes together and, uh, you know, go jump jumps and, and do things that we thought were cool and because that's what we would do. And so, uh, what we had been doing is every day we would get on our bikes and we'd go zooming down the, the, this is at Fernwood Junior High, for those of you that are familiar with what used to be there. So I'd get out at Fernwood and uh, uh, get on my bike, and I'd ride down Pass Road until I got to uh, whatever that is, Eisenhower or whatever that thing that goes down between the mall is. And anyway, there's a bank there now, and every time I drive by the bank, I think about this, but there used to be a little curb there long before the bank was there. 
And we had built it up into this little ramp. And so we would jump this jump. And we had nuanced this dirt around this jump until it would just launch you. I mean, it was awesome. And so all I would think about all day is how fast I would go today and how high I would fly when I hit this jump. And so this particular day, I I couldn't wait to get out of school. It was a beautiful sunny day. The bell rings. Out the door I go. Get on my mongoose. I'm ready to roll. Take off down Pass Road. And, uh, you know, got the lead on all my buddies. And I got my backpack on and I'm just pedaling away. And about that time, a school bus passes. Not just any school bus. School bus full of cheerleaders. So... The cheerleaders are in the school bus, and so as it goes by, I hear the high-pitched sound of, you know, heaven going, you know, ah, and I'm like, wow, look at that, and they're like, ah, and I'm like, ah, and so we're going, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm about to hit that jump, and there's the school bus full of cheerleaders. This is going to be like the greatest. I'm finally going to be cool right now in this moment. Tony's going to become cool. So I'm going, and lo and behold, the light turns red, cha-ching. So I'm thinking, I got a front row audience right here. And I mean, I've been practicing this thing. I've been building up. I'm good. So I pedal as fast as I can pedal. And I'm going, going, going. And the bus is there. And of course, what else are they going to look at? They see me coming. Now they don't know what's about to happen. I hit the jump and I launch. I'm talking airborne. And I'm in midair. And I distinctly remember thinking, I'm Superman right now. I am the greatest BMX rider in the history of the world. I look over to the side and I'm eye level with the cheerleaders in the bus. That's how high I am. I look at them and I'm like, that's right. It's me, the one and only Tony Carnes. And at that moment, my feet come off the pedals. Now, what you don't want to happen when you're in midair on a bicycle is for your feet to come off the pedals because that means you have utterly lost control of the situation. So what proceeded to happen was me and the bike collided with the pavement at the same exact time except for my feet smashed into the blacktop, which put everything to a screeching halt but the bike was careening forward at the speed of light. And so the, the polar opposite forces that, needless to say, I laid out on the concrete, book bags strewn everywhere, skin my arms up, my knees up, everything in front of all the cheerleaders in the junior high. And I just laid there like a dead person. I could hear them screaming and giggling and laughing. And I just closed my eyes and thought, you know, Calgon, take me away. I mean, I'm not getting up. So the bus drove off. And, of course, all my friends just thought it was the most hilarious thing ever. And uh, I just remember getting up from that and thinking, I think this is the worst day of my life right here. And uh, the next day when I got to school... um, I thought, well, you know, it's what's going to happen when I get there. Uh, What I wasn't prepared for is that when I got there, the big question was, is Tony alive? Did he survive that? Because he wasn't moving when the bus drove away. We've been concerned. No, he's alive. He just was too ashamed and embarrassed to move. And here's the point of, of, of my pain that I share with you. Is that what happens is, is that when we endeavor to build relationships in whatever way we capacity that we have what we want is people to like us we want to be accepted we want to we want to we want to we want to build a relationship i mean that's ultimately what was going on in my little 7th grade mind is that i i wanted to be liked i wanted to be accepted i and i wouldn't have minded having a girlfriend to be honest with you i mean what but there was things that i wanted and they were relational things but i didn't know how to get there. And, I, and they were so out of my control and they were so uh, painful oftentimes because what happened was those, the, the efforts that we put forth to build relationships wind up uh, being what we gauge our self-worth on. See, that's what makes that so painful. Then, it's not painful now, but then it was utterly and completely painful. And... Whether it be uh, we 
We say hello to somebody and they walk by and don't say anything to us. We think, well, that was weird. So then the next time we see them, we say hello. And again, they don't say anything. And now it's personal. We feel rejected. We feel, I mean, I don't know how the women in the room feel, but I can tell you that we feel, you know, like somebody's one-upped us, like somebody's gotten us, like we've been, you know, had. I mean, we're saying hello and you don't say hello back. And it's like a personal, it hurts. And so it bothers us or, you know, we, uh, we, we're driving down the road and we try to pass somebody. We go into the fast lane to pass somebody. And the very second that we pull into the fast lane to pass somebody, there's someone literally an inch from our bumper blinking their lights and honking their horn for us to get out of the way. And all we're trying to do is get around this person. And then when we get around them, we're frustrated. We get around them and then they come by. And then, what, and then there's the look. See, there's got to be the look. What is the look about? And, you know, the person's going like, what are you doing? Get out of my way. Can't you see I'm in a hurry? And, and so they drive off and I'm left, you know, thinking, well, that kind of hurt a little bit. Because we, we relationally, we do things, maybe because we think they're the good things to do. We set out to, to, to love other people. See, it gets more, it gets deeper when we start talking about building friendships, when we start talking about building relationships. We talk, start talking about people that we want to bring into our lives because now we're, we're making ourselves even more vulnerable. I mean, if it hurts when you say hello to somebody and they just walk by and don't say anything, then how much more painful is it if you invite someone to come over to your house and they, you know, don't show up or continually cancel or don't answer the phone when you call or whatever the case may be. And so because there, there's degrees at which we put ourselves out there and then it, it, it becomes more and more painful if we're rejected, if we're not accepted. And so over time, if we're not careful, here's what happens to all of us. We, we start keeping track of our own value based on these res- various responses that we're getting and we... And inevitably begin to gravitate towards the people who add to our value in this system. And we try to push ourselves away from the people who take away from our value in this system. So in other words, I just want us to be clear because in a few minutes we're going to get to this passage. And when we get to the end, there's going to be this aha moment. But only if you understand now where I'm going then. So what I'm saying is, is that if there's two people that one lives on the right side of you and one lives on the left side of you, and one of them, every time you say hello, they say hello back, and the other one, every time you say hello to, they just ignore you, you begin to seek this person out to say hello to and avoid this person or stop saying hello to them altogether. Why? Because we begin to sort of correlate into these reactions and responses our value and what we're worth, how that affects us. And it's a subtle shift, but really what it is is keeping score in our relationships. Now, some of you have these complex sort of relational structures in your life where you have various friends at various levels and various degrees and various uh, uh, levels of closeness to you. And within them, If you really stop and think about it, what you'll find is there's probably this scorekeeping system within your head. And there's certain people that you have a tendency to try to avoid. There's other people that you tend to gravitate towards. And we have a tendency to just think that's utterly and completely normal. Like, why would I want to be around somebody who ignored me when I said hello? I mean, wouldn't that be weird? Well, maybe. But I want to bring Scripture to bear on this on this scorekeeping in our relationships, on the way in which we uh, look at and evaluate the way we interact with people. You see, if we keep score in our relationships, which we all do to varying degrees, then it becomes all about us. And it utterly defeats the purpose of the relationship. Okay, so remember where we started. We want relationships with people. Why? Because 
We want to love and to be loved. Why? Because that's how God made us. But what happens is, is when we start keeping score in the relationships, it no longer becomes about us being loved or loving others. It just becomes totally about us and what our score is, what our value is. What does it bring to me? And so it becomes totally self-serving. And so then we fill our lives with people who build up our value in this mixed up score system and we reject the people who do not. And I'm telling you, every single one of us do it to some degree or another. And so, we look at people who don't treat us the way we feel like we should be treated, people who thwart our value and bring us down uh, as people who violate our right our right to be offended. And they're, because their behavior is wrong, it's offensive to us and therefore it's wrong. And so in our desire to yield justice on the situation, we just reject them because they don't treat us right and they don't act right and they don't do what they ought to do. And we cling to those who add value to us. So when we spend our time sort of subconsciously looking at the scoreboard of our lives. You ever notice how, if you really stop to think like, did I, am I having a good day today or a bad day today? Was yesterday a good day or a bad day? Start paying attention to that. What, is the, what are the determining factors of whether you're having a good day or a bad day? You watch that this week and, and see exactly what I'm talking about. Amazingly enough, so many times it doesn't really have much to do beyond with the way we're scoring, the way people are responding to us. That's the determining factor in how we feel. And so, no matter what, even when we're around people that are building us up and making us feel good and doing the things, they're serving our needs and our purposes, no matter how much you do that, the most popular person uh, in the seventh grade or the most popular liked person in this room is still going to feel a bit empty. No matter how good it is, you're going to feel empty. Because there's something ingenuous about it. There's something that's just not authentic. It doesn't meet the need that we need it to meet. We guard ourselves against uh, people who even have the potential to hurt us. And so what, what happens is, in our relationships, we take a defensive posture. And once you take a defensive posture in your relationships, now you've assumed a counter-gospel position. Now, I'm going to read you some scriptures that all of you have heard before, but never probably in the context of what we're talking about tonight. But I want you to see what happens when we bring scripture to bear on this Situation Now, why am I talking about this? Because it's a very big deal, and here's why. The tragedy of everything that I've said so far is that it negates the freedom that we have in Christ. To take a defensive posture in your relationships is counter-gospel because it's counter-freedom. And here's, the, here's the, the crime in that. The freedom that we're not embracing and living in was the most expensive freedom that's ever been paid for. It was purchased with the blood of God. And there's no freedom because we're allowing other people to determine who we are and what we're worth. Once scores start getting kept, freedom goes out the window. So, we hear the gospel. We read the Bible. And we keep it all in a future tense context, which much of the gospel is future tense, but not all of it. I mean, certainly the gospel is about heaven. The gospel is about eternal life. The gospel is about all the glorious things that await us. But what about today? What about the present tense of the gospel? What about right now in this moment, in whatever you're facing, in whatever relationships are in your life? How does the gospel come to bear on right now? on your relationships, in your family, with your children. How? Let me think about it. I could, I could 
way oversimplifying, step out on a limb. And I don't think the limb would snap and say that I would say probably 90% of the problems relationally in the families represented right here. The struggles that you're having, not that I know about them, but I know they're there, are because someone started keeping score in the home. I know. I know why you argue. I know why you get mad at your children for the same reason I do, because I'm keeping score. Because I take it personal when they don't do what they're supposed to do. I'm not alone in that. Husband starts keeping score. Suddenly his wife is alienated. She starts keeping score. Suddenly he's... It becomes this... What happened to the original intention of being loved and showing love? What happened to Ephesians chapter 5? There's no score in that. Jesus wasn't keeping score, now was He? No. But we do. And then we wonder why we can't get along. We say, I love them, but I can't get along with them. Why? Well, I think this is why. So Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Probably, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, all of Scripture is God-breathed and unbelievable and amazing and equally valuable and worthy. But I don't. there's something about the Sermon on the Mount that if you read it every day for the rest of your life, I don't think you would ever finish scaling the bounds and the beauty of the sights off the cliffs of these passages. They're so astonishing and unbelievable. But just let's just look at how it begins. In the very beginning, Jesus is going to sort of set the tone in the first couple of, of statements that He makes with these trans, this transvaluation of life, if you will. He turns everything upside down. So the first thing I want you to see is that the valuation, gospel valuation, is the opposite of what human valuation is. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, that's opposite. They're the Beatitudes. They're they're opposite. So suddenly it's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. They're comforted. It's the the meek that inherit the earth. I just want you to see that that right out of the gate, what Jesus does is he, He flips everything upside down. So you know you're in for a crazy ride right off the bat because he's not going along with the status quo. He's not talking about anything you've ever heard before. He's not laying down anything that, that's resonating naturally in any one of our hearts. Right off the bat, he's going, get ready because this is a whole new paradigm and everything's opposite from the way you think it is. So that's the beginning. Radical value change. Now what happens when our values are radically changed? How's that going to affect our relationships? Well, they're also going to be radically changed. You can't radically change your valuation system and not radically change your valuation system, your relational system. I mean, it's going to turn everything on its head. Why does Jesus start here? Because He knows that it's the value that's going to free us and liberate us from the score. So He starts with the value. And that's where He begins. And, and really, what is Christianity? Isn't it in a sense uh, uh, a set of radically altered values and relationships? Could we say that? I think we could. And so there's where it starts. Then we move into relationships. Now think, what's hanging in the back of my mind as I'm about to read this is the great commandment. I'm thinking about Jesus saying that basically everything, everything in the law and the prophets hangs on Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That this love God, love people thing is the, is the key. It's the linchpin. It holds it all together. And so look down in verse 21. We're getting there. This isn't where I want to be. I'm just setting the table for you. He says in verse 21, he says, Now you have heard it said before, or by those of old. Now, now understand something. What is he talking about right here? When he's talking about the Old Testament, what does he say? You have heard it. Written. Written. Is that in your Bible right here? No. He's not talking about what's written. He's talking about what's spoken. And so he says, You've heard it said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. 
But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, let's just stop here for a second. So, the word Raka, for example, what does that mean? It means you nobody. It's a, it's a derogatory slam against a person's value. And so what Jesus begins to do now as he set the values and the Beatitudes, now he's turning the corner towards the relational interaction that we're going to have in Christ, this new paradigm that he's setting forth. He's, he's saying now a lifestyle of love is going to start with a radically altered valuation system that is going to radically alter our hearts in such a way that we can no longer look down on anyone. Jesus says that if you look down on someone, if you, if you say you're worthless, you, you're a fool, you're, he's saying you're in great judgment, you're, you're in danger. Why? Because he's already radically established the value system is different. And so the issue is not whether or not these people are doing something good or bad or whether or not they deserve in your court to be called something. The issue is you no longer have the right to look down on anyone. We're getting there. Verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and give your gift. Now, if your relationship... Now, look at what he's talking about. First, he's saying, now, hold on. You can't can't call people these names. You can't look down on people relationally. And then he shifts gears and says, "Now, now, I want you to see how all these relationships are interacted. If you miss this new value system that's upside down from the way the world automatically would have it, if you don't see that the way you value your relationship with God and your relationship with yourself and your relationship with the world and that they're all intertwined and they all go together, if you don't understand this, here's what happens. If your relationship with your fellow man is out of accord, you can't worship. You got that? That's hard. No worship for you. I told you the values are now different. You're holding court in your heart and in your mind. And then you're determining things about someone that you don't have the right to do. And so he says, now, the relationship you have with other people is connected to the relationship you have with me. Huh. Sounds like the great commandment, doesn't it? He's linking the two together. He's saying, don't think you can love me and hate others, because you can't. Don't think you can love others and hate me, because you can't. They go together, only together. They're inseparable. So now Jesus, as we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to see he's going to address what I really want to talk about. And that is this issue of keeping score. And it won't take long, but it hopefully will be as much of a blessing to you as it's been to me. Look down in verse 38. Because now he's really getting down to the the brass tacks of the issue. This whole keeping score scenario. And he says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, so you hurt me, I hurt you. And so what happened was, was that people automatically, uh, whether it be today or in the first century or 3,000 years ago, automatically would sort of divert into their own sort of justice system. And so what would happen when somebody would do something wrong to me, then I would then respond to them in some sort of vengeance. But what inevitably happened was, if you hurt me, then I would hurt you and the people that you love and care about so that you would never hurt me again. In other words, if you hurt me, I would respond with a greater hurt than you put towards me to ensure that you wouldn't hurt me again. So God comes along, because this freaks people out sometimes. They're saying, I, 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 don't, I don't understand this eye for an eye thing. Sure. God comes along and says, no, no, we're not going to play that game anymore. 
This isn't a, a gang. We're going to make it even. So, if, if you hurt me, then I can respond in the same way to you. But we can't go further. We can't keep upping the ante because what happens is it just dissolves into chaos, doesn't it? Sure. Next thing you know, we're the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Yes, that's what happens. Two people get in an argument. Next thing you know, you know, half the state's fighting the other half the state and doesn't even know why. That's when this principle is not in effect. But so God brings this into effect. And then when you read the Old Testament, what do you find happening? God begins to lay out this system of justice. The book of Leviticus is extraordinarily detailed about it. And so if you do this to someone, or in Deuteronomy you read about it, then what would happen is you would the person would seek justice, and then the, the judge would say, well, you pay them this amount of money, or this amount of restitution, or whatever the case may be, but we're not going to just start careening off the hill of, I'm going to hurt you worse than you're going to hurt me worse, and I'm going to hurt you worse, and we're not going to do that. We're going to level the playing field. So that's the Old Testament idea behind what's going on. So God takes away this sense of compounding retribution. All right? And He replaces it with a very simple system. Verse 39. So, but I tell you, now we move into the New Covenant. So Jesus says, I tell you not to resist an evil person. In other words, here's what makes sense to me. You punch me in the forehead, I punch you in the forehead. Now, if you punch harder than me, well, that's just my loss. But if I punch harder than you, then, hey, it's a good day for me. See, that makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is this. You don't resist an evil person. So what you're saying, Jesus, is that if my neighbor, every time I say hello to him, he just ignores me and acts like I'm a complete moron. Don't resist that. Keep saying hello. I don't want to. That doesn't make any sense to me. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. What? How fun is it for me to sit in my office and read commentaries and watch people squirrel around that statement right there? It drives them crazy. They cannot figure out how to make that into some manageable. They just want to suck the supernatural life right out of that statement. No, no, it's, it means what it says and it says what it means. In other words, we're not keeping score here. That's what Jesus is telling you. Don't keep score. This isn't about you hurt me, I hurt you. Live above the offense, Jesus says. Now, verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, then let him have your cloak also. See, again, this is something that just flies over our head in our context. Understand that you would have, uh, uh, if you were a Jewish person listening to this, you'd have several uh, tunics, shirts. So if somebody needed one, you give them one, okay, I got that. But how many cloaks would you have? And what would you use your cloak for? You'd, You'd use it every day. It was your bed. It's what you would cover with. It is extraordinarily valuable to you. And Jesus says, yeah, give them your cloak also. Give them what you sleep on. Give it to them. And whoever compels you to go one mile now, it's just getting ridiculous. I mean, he's just poking into the Jewish context. And he's hitting them right where they're the most tender. And that is with regards to the Romans. And he says, If whoever compels you to go one mile, then you go too. Give to him who asks. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. This issue of, this would be a Roman soldier. The law was if he came up to any Jew, he'd just slap him with a spear. And he'd say, hey, carry my stuff. And they were as a Jewish man obligated to carry their stuff one mile. And so you know what they would do? They would, they would lug this junk. And what do you think happened when they were 99.99999% to the one mile? They'd look around. They'd go one mile and throw the junk on the ground because they hated the Romans. They hated them. 
And Jesus said, yeah, well, when that happens, go two miles. Huh? Verse 43. So you, you've heard that it's been said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So Jesus, uh, you want us to be a pushover? You want us to be a doormat? You want us to just allow the world to just walk right over us and just do anything they want to us and we're supposed to just take this and receive this and... And by no means is Jesus advocating that you uh, remain in an abusive, harmful relationship. But what He is saying is that we're not keeping score any longer. You've got to stop keeping score. You've got to stop it. Because it's based on a value system that's no longer in play in your life because you're born again. And because of this new value system, you don't have the right to look down at anyone. And that's going to radically change all your relationships. And when all your relationships begin to radically change, this is what you're going to have to understand to move forward. And so, it sort of leaves us a little unresolved, doesn't it? Now, hold on a second. What am I supposed to do with this? Well, here's what I began thinking about. If you and I truly knew God's value for us, if we knew in our hearts what we personally, not you, not your husband, your wife, your kids, you personally, what you mean to God, If you knew that you were of infinite value to Him. If you knew that the words we sang that came out of Psalm 139 were true about you. That He knit you and formed you together. That there's never ever been anyone like you. Nor will there ever be another person who's like you. You're one of a kind, unique. You're the poema of God created for good works. If we understood the value that we had in Him. Is there any offense that would cause us to want to take action or keep score? Think about it. If you honestly knew who you were in Christ, would it not utterly dismantle the desire to infuse justice into these situations? To start keeping score in relationships too. Because it's all based on us trying to self-value. Where freedom comes in is when you no longer have to self-value. When you no longer are looking externally to find out your value and your worth. To find out who you are. But when all you have to do is look up or look into Scripture. Look to Him. You're not looking to any person, any relationship, any situation, any scenario. Him and Him alone. You are then free. Free. I know you don't believe me. Let's work on it. If if I could go back to the day on the bicycle... If I could know everything I know now. But yet I could somehow go back to that moment. So I could have the brain I have now, but I'd be physically the young man I was then. And I relived that whole moment again. Would it be painful? I mean, sure, the scrapes and the bruises would hurt a little bit. But would the, would the laughing and the jeering bother me? Would I care? What 6th and 7th grade cheerleaders think about me? No, I wouldn't. But how is it that at that moment, in that time, it's so utterly painful? Because now, 
I know the rest of the story. See, what frees me from the pain of that is that for me, I know how it all works out. And the degree to which we see the way it all works out, the degree to which we find pleasure or comfort or satisfaction in what God has done is going to be the degree to which if we went back, it would no longer hurt. So in other words, for all of us, if we went back to some moment in time, it might hurt a little bit, a tiny bit. But now if you were today in a situation where it was still unresolved, where you didn't feel like that somehow that event in your life prevented you from ever getting to places and building the relationships that you thought you wanted to have. In other words, if I didn't have a beautiful wife and a wonderful family, then maybe that moment would still be painful to me. But because I have what I have, it's of no consequence. Who cares? But if I were single and alone or jaded and hurt, I might still look back on that and it still might hurt. So the degree to which I find satisfaction in today is going to affect how, if I went back to yesterday, how that's going to affect me. That's an important truth for you to understand. Because see, in order for you to say, well, none of this matters. Tomorrow when someone offends you, How are you going to say, well, none of this matters? It doesn't bother me. If you know your value in Christ, you won't be hung up on what other people think, what other people do. You won't be in bondage to this game of affixing value based on their reactions. You can just live in the freedom of knowing that you are totally and utterly accepted and beloved in God. So what's the problem with us? We can sing it. We can know it in our head. We can even speak it out of our mouth. But we have a very hard time resolving it in our heart. Once we cross the threshold of truly grasping the depth of the love of God for us, we no longer are interested in keeping score in human relationships. It just loses all of its power. It loses all of its bite. Living in freedom is being able to love other people regardless of what they do and regardless of how they respond without keeping score. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's why it's so incredibly difficult to read the Sermon on the Mount and to figure out how in the world do I go forward in this because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. And what we need to do is wrap up in Him and free ourselves from all of this. I mean, let's be honest. Relationally, between you and me, and you and you, and us and everyone, it's not the action, is it? It's the perception. It's the reaction. What am I talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. You walk by somebody in your office, you say... Hey, Bob, how you doing? Bob walks by, doesn't say anything to you. Hmm, wonder what's wrong with Bob. That's weird. So then the next day you walk by, hey, Bob, how you doing? Bob walks by, doesn't say anything to you. Man, maybe Bob doesn't like me. Maybe Bob thinks I've got bad breath or i am got a problem or that I stole his idea and submitted it to the boss or whatever the case may be. And then suddenly we start getting wrapped up in the fact that Bob won't say hello. And then we probably go to someone else and say, hey, when you say hi to Bob, does he say hi to you? 
Why would we ask that? But we do because we want to know. Is it just us? Somehow if it's ten other people, we feel better. Like that changes them. But in our mind it does. So that's what we do. And we ask other people, hey, when you say hi to Bob, does Bob say hi to you? Because we want to know. Because we're trying to figure this out. Next thing you know, we're like Inspector Clouseau. We're trying to figure out. Now, what's the deal with Bob? Why won't Bob say hello to me? I want to know what the problem is. And then we find out that Bob, maybe we go to Bob and we sit down and say, Bob, I need to talk to you. He just shakes his head. When I say hi to you, why don't you say hi to me? And then Bob says, well, because I have a very severe speech impediment. And all my life I've been made fun of by the way I talk. And because I've never really been able to overcome it, and I still talk funny today, I found it easier just not to talk to people. And suddenly the score is even. Is that not the stupidest thing? Why? What that tells us is, is that it's not about saying hello to Bob. It's about what Bob responds back to us. It's not the action. It's the perception of the response. And if there's a good reason for it, then it's okay. and It makes everything fine because it's not personal against me because we're all keeping score. And Jesus says... When someone doesn't say hello to you, keep saying hello to them. It's not about the score. It's about the action. You do what's right and let the chips fall where they may. Because I got this thing. I'm in control of this thing. I love you infinitely. You're mine. You don't have to worry about this anymore. Don't you see? But we keep getting sucked into the trap. Jesus says, no. Stop it. Do what's right. And let it be. What would happen in our homes if we did this? What would happen with the relationships that we have with our spouses and our children, with our extended family members that there's so much strife in? What if we just stopped it for once? When is the last time I got to hear a Christian sit in my office and bemoan all the injustices that someone in their family has perpetrated against them? That is done and gone and no one can go back and no one can fix that. And yes, it was wrong. And yes, it was painful. And yes, it was. But did I miss something or did Jesus Christ die, forgive you, redeem you? Take you, walk with you, carry you, cleanse you, do everything for you that could ever happen. Yet we're still living in yesterday. He says, hey, hey, just do what's right. And let me take care of the rest. Don't keep score. Don't do that. How, Jesus? How? I'm not sure that Pastor Tony's right. I'm just not sure that my understanding of your love for me is the solution to this problem. wonder what the next thing Jesus says is. Look at verse 45. He says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He says, you know, do you know how you're going to do the right thing and let the chips fall where they may? Because you're my son. Because you're my daughter. Because I've adopted you and grafted you into my family. Because we're not keeping that score anymore. You see, that's the whole point of the cross. Is that the score system for you has been erased. Now, the world in which you live in is still stuck in the bondage of it. But you're no longer in that. You don't look in the mirror and begin to evaluate the reflection of what you see looking back. Based on any worldly paradigm or any success or the valuation placed on you by other people. That the only things that matter... 
matters is did my son hang on a cross and was he humiliated and beaten and drained of all of his life right there, right then for you in that moment? Was that true or not true? And if it is, then your value settled. It's settled. It's done. And if you get that, there's freedom. So when the prophet Isaiah comes along and drops this bomb in Isaiah 43, who knew there'd be a thousand plus years before anyone would ever be able to figure out how in the world could that be true? Isaiah 41, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place, since you were precious in my sight. You've been honored, and I have loved you. Do you remember what I said about going back into the past and how that experience would be? You see, I realized that I can tell a silly story about crashing a bike and being in the seventh grade. But the reality is, is that there's some of you in this room that have been deeply, deeply hurt. And your story is far more heinous and grievous than my little incident. And I recognize that. But the path forward for you is the same as it is for me. And it goes like this. That if today you sit in this place, in this moment, in this time, and the hurt of the valuation of others over the course of your life is yet Unresolved. In other words, if tonight you would say, I'm in a place in my life where I really didn't want to be. This isn't the way I thought it was going to work out. This isn't what I want for my life. I'm, I'm here tonight and I know God loves me, but I'm lonely. I'm in a relationship, but it's not a healthy relationship. I have a family, but we're a dysfunctional family. I have a job, but it's a demeaning job. I have my health, but it's not really good health. You fill in the blank. If tonight you sit here and those things are unresolved, in other words, you're not sitting here tonight saying, hey man, I'm on top of the world. God's just done me right. Everything's going great for me. Then if you went back to that time and that place, it would still hurt a whole lot because the pain of yesterday is connected to the pain of today. But the path forward is where the Sermon on the Mount starts. Is that if somewhere along the course of that line in your life, God saved you. Then the, the tape got erased. The, the story got redeemed. That all of that, all of that, is not what defines you anymore. This is why, if we go back to the gospel in the future tense, when we get to glory, there's not going to be any tears or any sorrow or any pain. Or any, why? Because it's so great. No one's going to be thinking about what happened when you were a child. No one's going to be thinking about what happened yesterday or the day before that or any other day because it's so amazingly great. Because when everything gets resolved, if you knew that everything would be resolved, then you wouldn't be so hurt by what had happened in the past. 
Because you knew it was going to be okay. You knew it was going to be resolved. And the point I'm trying to make is that if you're saved, it's resolved. It's not that it's not real. It's not that it didn't hurt. It's not that it didn't happen. All that's true. And it has shaped you and molded you. But God's word is truth. And that he does use all things. He uses all things for his glory in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that he takes those things and he says, hey, listen, I know that was bad. I know that hurt. I know that. But it's okay because it's all okay now. And it's going to be okay. And it's going to progressively get better and better and better until it's all resolved. And you're not going to look back anymore. But in order to get there, you have to realize that right now in this moment, though we're not there. His love precedes our experience. We can't live in this world as believers and be effective. If we're keeping score. That's one of the beautiful things about this place. Is that so many of us have learned to not keep score with one another. But now what we have to do. Is not keep score with them out there. And that's when. That's when the new radical set of valuation is going to take hold in radical relationships that is going to lead to radical impact all across the landscape of your life. You are not in charge. Of managing your worth. You've been bought with a price. And it's the highest price. No one has ever bid, nor will they ever bid, higher than the bid that was paid for you. And so when you walked across the stage of God's grace, and the world looked on, and began to pick you apart. And began to say, well, you know what? She's too heavy. She's too short. He's too slow. He's not smart enough. He's not valuable enough. He's not this enough. You're not that enough. You're too old. You're too young. Everyone's got a problem. God raised his hand in the back. And said, put me down for infinite price. Swipe my card for that one. Because I place a value on them that no one can comprehend. That's who you are in Christ. Now, our job is to go out there and act like it. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for being with us tonight and for helping us, Lord, to understand the nature of what you desire for us to walk out of here with tonight. And Lord, I pray that in the days and weeks to come, you'll continue to allow this truth to operate in our lives and in our heart, Lord, that we'll gain understanding in a deep and permanent abiding way. Father, thank you for the impact that this reality can have upon our lives, our families, our marriages, our work relationships across the landscape of our lives, God, it can utterly transform us. Thank you. Now help us, Lord. We're grateful tonight. We love you. We recognize that you and you alone are the author of transformation. And so we pause in this moment and give you glory and praise for that. God, may every redeemed person in this room celebrate in their heart the price paid for them. Lord, I pray that if there be one among us who is still walking across the auction block of life, who still feel, feels the, the jeer and the 
and the heat from the stairs of the world that's affixing a value upon them, Lord God, that you would bring freedom. Freedom tonight. Freedom through salvation. Freedom through the gift of redemption. Or maybe just freedom through the realization of what's already been done. We thank you for it, God. So just do in this time what only you can do. We'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.